broadcasting from just south of Los Angeles, California. This is the Veggie Power Podcast, exploring topics relating to working out, powerlifting, and everyday advice for lifting and living well. I'm your host, Dr. Ashley Contorno. All right, let's veg out. Well, hello, my friends. It seems like it has been a long time. I think I did my last podcast like somewhere within a month of all this coronavirus shit starting. And then I did one on gyms maybe another month ago, but time is kind of relative right now, right? Like, is it Saturday? Is it Wednesday? They feel the same. I don't really know. But here we stand. Today is Saturday. It is June 13th. I had to look at my watch to know the date, even though I had a virtual bench seminar this morning that was dated. I still don't know what day and time it is, but that is what it is. I decided to do a Corona Cast Part 2 as kind of a follow-up now that I feel like we personally, Stephen and I and the gym fam, are kind of sitting on the other side of the coronavirus pandemic, although it is still ongoing. I feel like for us, it's not as important anymore. I just kind of want to give, this isn't like a specific topic. It's more me sharing my thoughts and opinions and some of the things that happened to me and us during this time and how I've been reflecting on it now because a lot has happened in not only the world but in our small microcosm here and also the larger United States at large. We opened the gym last Wednesday officially It was 90 days to date that we were forced to be closed by the government, and it is fucked up, y'all. Like, we followed all the rules, and we got no reward, and that's the thing that kind of sucks. I know in my last podcast talking about owning a business and owning a gym, people see you know, they think it's, oh, it's fucking great. You're owning your own fucking space. Like, fuck yeah, man. But in this instance, it wasn't necessarily to our benefit to have that space. And like, it just fucking sucked. Like just something out of our control sucked. We weren't worried about losing the gym because we've been saving to open our new gym. We were just more worried about the community and like health and wellness, mental health, lifting and not just lifting, but health and well-being and physical fitness in general, moving your body is 100% correlated with mental well-being, especially when someone relies on that aspect of releasing the endorphins of exercising and moving your body for their own health and wellness. And to deem that as non-essential, but fucking laundromats are, and not laundromats because a lot of people don't have a washer and dryer, but dry cleaning, um, I think is a little bit one-sided as far as where we as the United States deem what is important and what is not important, especially considering that coronavirus. So I want to talk a little bit about the statistics of coronavirus because this shit pisses me off and I'm going to drop some knowledge bombs for you guys. But in general, um, COVID-19 and coronavirus is 
so skewed on the scale of impacting people who have comorbidities. Like the chance of you getting COVID-19 or I'm sorry, having um, a extreme case or dying of COVID-19 if you do not have comorbidities is like zero. Almost every single person that has died has had some type of comorbidities. It's in the 90 percentile range. All of the data, in my opinion, though, is kind of skewed because there is a lot of um, death certificates that were issued of COVID-19 that don't necessarily correlate with positive tests, whereas a lot of hospitals and facilities were diagnosing and labeling people as COVID-19 positive without necessarily taking the test and receiving a positive answer due to just their symptoms and presentation. So I'm going to take all of that data with a grain of salt. And I mean, everything kind of that's going on right now is a little bit grainy, if one shall say. But with that being said, we should have a larger emphasis on health and wellness and being fit and reducing your chances of comorbidities. And a gym is a place to do so. So I'm going to hit you with the data as the CDC reports. These are the latest statistics as of today, June 13th, 2020, of the deaths, infection rate and deaths from COVID-19. There's a large skew in Los Angeles County. I don't know if I should say the whole numbers because numbers when you're listening don't really sound that great, but in the United States alone... There's 2.1 million confirmed cases. That's a lot. Not that many, though, considering Los Angeles County in and of itself has 10 million people just right here. 117,000 deaths in the United States. That is a death rate of 0.08% total for the entire United States. So that is less than 1% of those individuals who get COVID-19 end up passing away. In California, the whole entire state, the death rate is 3.5%. In the entire world, the death rate is a half of a percent. A half of a percent of people who get this will die. And in Los Angeles County, it is 4%, which is really high. And I just love, I would love to challenge the actual facts and knowing of those people that have died on their death certificates that have COVID-19 as a diagnosis, how many of them actually were tested and actually were tested positive? Because I feel like those individuals should be removed from the sample size as, you know, under investigation or whatever it may be as not solid and concrete data since they weren't tested and they weren't confirmed as positive cases. But that's just my thoughts. So in general, for the entire United States, we're looking at a little less than 1% chance of death if you can track this. I did not look up statistics on pneumonia, cancer, heart disease, uh, all those things, car crashes, Uh, dying of overdose because I'm sure they're way higher. And anecdotally speaking, aside from the clinical evidence of the actual percentages of infections and death rate, I want to just talk about 
what the government has been doing as far as rapidly moving through these phases. About so Memorial Day weekend, I would say, is when a lot of states started to go into quote-unquote phase two-ish. Phase one is lockdown. Phase two would be reopening of things. And, or maybe the week before that, um, Stephen and I and China and her boyfriend Adrian and all of our dogs went on a trip to Arizona because Arizona had opened the week before and we're like, fuck yes. At that point in time in Los Angeles, which is actually still true here in Los Angeles, June 13th, Whenever you leave your house, you're supposed to have a mask on 24 fucking seven. Every single place you go, mask, mask on. And it's fucking crazy. So we went to Arizona just for like a getaway trip, wanting to have some source of normalcy and wanting to just like be able to live and go out to dinner and all of this. Because quite honestly, I'm going to go on a lot of tangents throughout this podcast. This podcast is more of like a mental manifesto than anything else, but I was struggling uh, to be candid, real, and honest, if you've been listening to my podcast since this started, or if you know me, you know that I am a bulimic. Um, I had been, I say past tense, because I had been in recovery from my disease for quite some time, and I have relapsed throughout the coronavirus pandemic more times than I can count on at least one hand. It hasn't surpassed two hands, thankfully, but... Um, it has nothing to do with my, um, feelings on if I'm full or hungry. It is totally that it is a fulfillment and a release of stress. And I'm feeling fulfilled in a way and I'm feeling relieved and released of stress. And that is my coping mechanism. And unfortunately, because there is nothing to fucking else do. I had no other, I couldn't, you know, go to a fucking trail, take a walk, go do something outside. And also I feel like I was suffering from depression because all of the things that I would like to do, I didn't want to do. I just wanted to fucking sit outside and just sulk and be pissed and hate the world that this is even happening. And it, it sucks. And eating disorders and any type of addiction or disorder lives and thrives in guilt and shame. And I'm not going to allow myself to feel shameful for what happened because I'm acknowledging that it did and I'm moving on. And I'm really employing now that I have available resources, those resources to make sure that I am putting my energies and efforts in other things that make me feel fulfilled as opposed to having to resort to that. Um, my last and final, um, attempt to binge and purge, I was trying to order some food on Postmates and fortunately there was no Postmate available to perform my order. So they canceled it for me and I was like, "Mm, well, thank you Postmates. So it sucks and it puts me in a vulnerable position to admit this to all of you strangers that are listening all over the world. But that's the best thing I can do for myself is to be fucking honest and not make myself feel guilty, not make it feel fucking weird because people think mental illness, eating disorders, all that stuff is weird. And guess what? I'm a fucking normal human being and I'm also a bulimic and I can have that duality and be fucking okay. And I am. And I'm figuring it out as I go and no one's perfect and I can't expect myself to be perfect every single minute of every fucking day because that doesn't happen. But I'm doing my goddamn best, you guys. Forgot where I was, but we went to Arizona 
and it was amazing. Oh my God. Aside from China's dog, China and Adrian's dog, Riot, it well, Riot isn't bad. Riot is a puppy. He was in found in like a junkyard. He was like six weeks old when they got him. But Riot is the perfect name because he's a fucking Riot. He's just like, just, I've never had a puppy. I don't think I'll ever get a puppy after that experience. And I commend them for caring for that. It's adorable, though, the adorable dog. Sammy, my pit lab, hated the puppy. Sammy hates nothing and no one, but he would not even let Riot get near him. And Nova, like, the first day was, like, so motherly and just put up with his shit. And then by the end of the trip, she got a little pissed, too. But honestly, all in all, like, it was a great trip. It was great spending time with friends. It was great getting away and not feeling the stress of being in Los Angeles and being able to go out to dinner and not have to wear a mask and, like, not all this weird, like, tense pressure of, you know, don't touch this, don't do that. Not saying that Arizona had no rules and regulations, but... It was very, very relaxed compared to the current climate and environment that is Los Angeles. Now, the past few weeks, so we're fast-forwarding a month from our vacation. There have been several news stories posting like, oh my God, since economies have reopened, cases and deaths have spiked all over the world. And specifically, there was some heat on Arizona, and I saw some articles popping up, and me being your girl who doesn't just trust the fucking headlines because they're usually not right or they paraphrase in such a weird way that doesn't make sense. I looked at the data and Arizona in and of itself, as of, I would say three days ago, when I looked at the data, I could look up the most current, but I'm sure it hasn't changed that much in three days. There was only 25,000 cases in the whole motherfucking state. There was like 1400 deaths, which that alone is less than just Los Angeles County. Okay, so I looked up Arizona state population. They have 7.2 million people in the state. Their death rate, well, they have, as of today, 32,000 confirmed cases and 1,144 deaths. That is a 3.5% death rate. So I looked up the data on that day where I saw that news article saying, Arizona's spiking out of control, deaths and cases out of control. And every state has its own governing agencies that are reporting and controlling the data. Well, it's all reported to the CDC, but how the state presents it on their own websites is different. Arizona in particular had a day-by-day graph that showed you can hover over each day and it will show um, how many deaths or how many cases are reported each day. And every day. The day in particular that I looked up the article, the fucking cases were up by two. It was not even the highest death toll of the entire pandemic. The highest death toll was actually in April um, in the state of Arizona by a significant amount of deaths. I would say their highest death number I think was in the 20s, like 24 or 25. Um, the day in particular of reporting was around 24. Their highest death day, I believe, was 29. And some days in between were in the teens. So to say that, you know, one day it went up by two compared to the previous day, but it's, you know, the average is still well within, you know, plus or minus a couple percent, um, isn't necessarily saying that the cases are getting out of motherfucking control. So if anything, 
I urge and encourage you all to don't just read the headline to look at the data because that is where you're actually getting your information from. I will say sometimes it's hard to find the data in like right now is today's day and age because there's not a lot of like agencies giving, you know, unbiased facts. Um, I go on the Los Angeles County website and I read all of the moratoriums, all of the signed, um, they have like press releases of the Los Angeles County of Supervisors, the um, the mayor, all the executive orders that are signed, all the things has to be documented and published. And that's what I read because those are the actual laws that these fucking reporters are reading and they synthesize and they shoot out there for you. Now, there's better information where you read than others, but really what their job is when you get these like quick articles, they're just trying to synthesize and make the information as easy as possible for you to read and digest. And sometimes that synthesis may just make that information bland and you're not really getting the data or the roots. It's just, you know, a a catch-all statement that's meant to just be what you need to hear. And sometimes that's not what actually is presented. So that's my, you know, find your evidence and find what you need. But back to Arizona. So tangent, on the way home, um, although we had a lovely trip, it was the most stressful Memorial Day of my motherfucking life. So halfway from Phoenix, Arizona to San Pedro, California is this town called Blythe. How do I know that? It's because Stephen and I did long distance uh, when I lived in Phoenix, Arizona. I actually lived in Scottsdale, which is right outside of Phoenix, and he lived here. And one day I was like, you know what? Instead of flying, um, at that time Spirit flew back and forth, and it was like 40 bucks round trip, which I'm like, that's the fucking price of dinner, so fuck yeah. Um, And it was like a 45-minute flight when driving is about six hours. So I was like, why don't, or it's like five hours. Why don't we just meet halfway? And I found Blythe. I found this hotel. It's like this small little town. The hotels were like 50 bucks a night. I'm like, fuck yeah. Uh, So I drove there. I got there in two and a half hours. And I'm like, all right, baby, I'm waiting for you. I'm all sexy on this bed. Come and get me. It took him six hours to get there, leaving from Los Angeles and Friday night traffic. Holy fucking shit. We never did that again, and we also swore that we would never go to Blythe again. Well, fate had another destiny for us that day. So as we were driving, all of a sudden, Stephen's like, we're on the freeway, we have the dogs in the back, and he's like, holy shit, everything just like stopped. Like, power went out, everything. So some, by lucky chance, we were like approaching an exit. So we, we coast off at this exit. Steven's like honking at people like, get the fuck out of the way. And we pull into this gas station and we thought the battery just had died for some reason. Like maybe it wasn't charging and I don't know. So I buy some jumper cables. We try to get jumped. It's like a hundred fucking degrees. The dogs are out panting and we call triple A and they send a truck out and he has a battery jumper, but not a tester. So he wasn't able to test if the battery was, you know, full or dead. And we're just like, oh, fuck. So we were 250 miles from home. Right now, because of coronavirus, 
if you get a tow from AAA, you are not allowed to sit in the motherfucking tow truck. So we're like, well, that helps us none. And also we had a 100-mile tow in our package, which towing is around $7 a mile. So that would have been a $1,200 tow for the rest of the way to get us home the 250 miles. And we would have had to find a taxi or an Uber or someone to take all of us and the dogs home. And we're like, holy fuck, what's going on? So we were in a city called Quartzsite which is about 20 minutes from Blythe. So we call AAA again. We find, so then Stephen's calling mechanic shops, and then we find a place in Blythe that's open. It's Memorial Day. So, like, obviously a lot of places are going to be closed and availability is going to be limited. So when we called AAA back, they were like, okay, well, we only have, like, two drivers in your area, and they're both busy, so it's going to be about two hours. The dogs are fucking panning. We're, like, fucking freaking out. We left at, like, 9 in the morning. It's now, like, 2 in the afternoon. We should have already been home. And so the, we call for a private tow. It was cheap because it was so close to take us to Blythe. Adrian and China left later than us from the hotel, and they were – like surprisingly, like 15 minutes from us, like approaching us. So I had them pick me and the dogs up. Steven went in the tow truck, took the the car to Blythe to this place. They were like calling us like, we're trying to close. Are you going to get here? Are you going to get here? We're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Run away, run away, run away. So we get there. We think it's a combination of the starter, the alternator, and the battery. So dude quotes us, it's going to be like a thousand bucks to replace all those things, parts, labor, whatever. My loving husband does not know what year his car is. He has a 2002 Toyota Camry and he said it was a 2012. So on the first change of parts, some of them were compatible because they were 10 years older than the car actually is. So the guy, um, Changed them out again. So finally, about six hours later, the fucking dogs are like sitting in the waiting room with us. We're sitting in the waiting room. There's like a shitty widow air conditioner. They only take cash. I walked like four blocks. It was 102 degrees to this bank to get cash out. Luckily, I have three cards with from three different accounts because the limit was $500 or $400 an account or some shit to get the money we needed. So they fix it. It starts, but when it starts, it's like... So the, I don't really know the mechanical terms because although I'm a doctor, I'm not a doctor of the engines. Um, there's gasoline in the oil and the pistons are like hitting the ship. Basically the motor is blown. Um, speaking with another mechanic friend of ours, Travis, he explained later that this mechanic was probably fairly inexperienced because that is something you check for. You, you check the oil and things like that when you're in the process of diagnosing a vehicle. Unfortunately, you know, he could have told us there was a unicorn poking tiny holes in the muffler and that's what caused it to break. That is not our forte and that is a downfall of not, you know, understanding the in and outs of those things when you go to a mechanic. It's, you know, pretty common, you know, story and theme that you could get fucked when you don't know. So we had to still pay this guy for the work and the parts that he did for him to tell us your engine's not going to work. You could probably make it to, I forget what he said. He didn't have a hillbilly accent, but I'm giving him one. He's like, you could probably make it down there to that city. And it was like 50 miles away, wherever the fuck they have Burning Man or some shit like that. Not Burning Man. I don't know, that other fucking hippie show that's in California out in the desert. And... 
we were just like, fuck. And then he's like, all right, well, listen, like the dude worked there with his wife. They were like in their thirties. They were really nice. They were not trying to fuck us in any way. Like heart to heart was a fucking nice guy. And he's like, well, listen, um, the owner of, I work for a tow company. Like they had tow trucks on the yard as well. He's like, he own he is my boss owns the tow yard and we have this Chrysler 300. It's a 2005. It's got 140,000 miles. We could sell it to you for 2,500 bucks. It'll get you home. Then you could sell it when you get home, whatever. We're like, fuck it. Get us out of here. Well, at that point, it was like eight at night. I had withdrawn all the money I could withdraw. No, it was like seven. Withdrawn all the money I could withdraw out of the accounts. And we were like, all right, well, we're fucking staying here for the night, I guess. And we get a hotel. We stay in the hotel with the dogs. And the next morning we wake up. The dude's wife drives us an hour to the next town where Chase Bank is so I can get money out. And we drive home another hour. We go to the tow yard. We pay to get this car. And we walk around the lot and we see this car. And we're like, oh, my fucking God. I've never bought a $2,500 car before, so I don't really know how shitty a fucking $2,500 car is, but this thing was an epic piece of shit. As we're walking around the corner, the dude's like jumping it because it's dead and the tires are flat and I'm just like, oh my God, oh my God, fuck no. Like we just went through this all day yesterday. I'm not fucking doing this again. I'm not fucking doing this again. And Steve and I are just looking at each other like, what the fuck? So we get in this car, we drive it like 500 feet down the road and like, to say this thing was a piece of shit would be giving this car a goddamn compliment. And there was a Chevy dealership, and we pull into it. Steven, this car is, like, so low to the ground. It's on, like, 28s. You can't even see the tire. It's, like, two inches from the ground. He fucking, like, curbed it so hard, like, the fucking the fender, like, underneath the front bumper. And we're like, oh, my God. And we were going to fill the the tires with air because we felt like it was going to ruin the tires just driving like the mile back to the mechanic shop to get the rest of our shit. And we get in there and like, there's like nobody on the lot because coronavirus. And we're like, can, can you just like help us fill the tires, blah, blah, blah. And then the car fucking died. And I call this dude and like, I'm a nice person for the most part. And like the tone of my voice and I'm getting heated just telling the story right now. And I was like, we were only a couple hundred feet down the road from the tow yard. I was literally about to walk back there, reach through the fucking window of the lady that was working there and have a few words with her, not using my mouth to get her fucking money back and give this fucking car back. And um, for the first time, Stephen and my physical stature was intimidating enough to reverse this transaction and get our money back because that's not how that shit works, y'all. Usually you get fucked and you get rolled and you move on. So we're at this Chevy dealership. The mechanic's wife has all of our belongings and our dogs in her car. I'm there by myself. Steven's returning the car and I'm like freaking out like, holy shit. Like this is the equation of all the shit that could go wrong when you see a movie and you're like, you dumb motherfucker. Why didn't you see this coming? Well, here I was like, I'm a dumb motherfucker. I saw this coming. So I walk into the like the main office of this dealership. And I was like, does anybody want to fucking sell a car today? Come out here. I was so mad. And I'm like, how many trucks do you have on this lot? Under a hundred thousand miles, under $20,000 go. And he's like, I got two Colorados over there. I'm like, give me the keys to the one on the left. 
And uh, I just drive around the parking lot. I'm like, how long is this going to take? Let's fill out the paperwork. So Stephen and I are now proud co-owners of a 2017 Chevy Colorado with 35,000 miles. Although Stephen did want to get a new truck, this was not how it was going to or supposed to happen. Luckily, we had $2,500 cash to put down on the vehicle and then we financed the rest. But Jesus, we did this is like our business is closed. We're not working. We just went on a nice cheap vacation. We drove to Arizona to try and just relax and this happened. So that's the story. Moving forward, during this week that we came back, um, all of the chaos started ensuing with protesting and riots and what happened with George Floyd. The It's just, to say it's tragic is the truth. Like, the emotions and Everything that is just fueling through the United States, along with being locked down, losing your livelihood, losing a lot, and losing what you feel like is your humanity as a person. You know, I feel I was talking to my therapist about what happened, and I honestly feel bad on many levels. But I feel like because I'm a business owner and because our business is closed, our livelihood is taken away, and that has been my sole and utter focus this entire time, I wish that this would have happened at a different time because I don't feel like I could have had the same reaction that I would have if it was at a different time. I want to feel for the situation more than I have been. I feel like my mind is so distracted that I can't put my energies and efforts into this movement that is happening and I feel for it and I want to go to the protests and I want to be a part and support what I feel is right. But I'm so just like, I just need my fucking gym to open. Like, it's all I can think of. So it it sucks. And I've had a lot of moments of reflection on it lately. But what I'm reflecting most, I mean, being a white woman, there's white privilege all over and from head to toe. And I I think the most meaningful conversations I've had was with um, my parents and just how they don't understand. And they, like, the institutional racism is so embedded within who they are and everything they've experienced, you know, growing up and living in the Midwest that I can't even have a relevant conversation with them because of their thoughts and opinions. So I just kind of retract and say, you know what? Okay, like, you don't understand. This is how I feel. Let's just move on. But what has been bothering me is it's a new term called virtue signaling. And what that is, is like having to make your statement. And I personally don't necessarily agree with that. Like um, if a company doesn't make a statement, that means that they're against this. And that may be true and that may not be true. What is something I feel that's important is the non-optic allyship. And that is also a new term. And what that means is a company, a person, an entity, a group that is supporting and, you know, whether it's a monetary support, whether it's in person, whether it's talking to other people, whether it's changing their actions or their behavior, and it doesn't need to have optics. It doesn't need to have a post. It doesn't need to have an email. It doesn't need to have a tweet or a story or anything. It just is done. And honestly, in my opinion, that is the best way to change. 
It's you're just changing and you don't need to make a, you know, a, a scene out of what you're doing. Like as a white woman, if I donate and support, you know, a black business, if I support, you know, I bought some clothing that all of the donations are being sent towards, you know, restaurant owners that are minorities, I'm doing things in support. I'm reaching out to people who maybe makes me feel uncomfortable to have these conversations, but I am. And I don't need to share that with the world in order to know where I stand. And so I just feel like, I'm, I guess maybe I'm speaking specifically from the USPA, like there was, um, like all these people asking and signing petitions because they needed to make a statement. And, um, I think the statement that Steve Dennison made with the USPA was absolutely excellent. I think that a lot of the things that I've seen the USPA do along the, the road since I've been a member and been a power lifter of how they stand for, anti-anything, anti-bullying, anti-racist, anti, you know, all of these things that I firmly back and approve that it feels like a safe space. I can't say that I 100% know that it feels like a safe space for minorities because I am not a minority. And if those people really feel like, you know, if all of you guys feel who posted that you need, that there was like, sign the petition to make USPA, you know, say something. Like, to make a coerced statement in order to show your virtue and have that virtue signaling, I just don't feel is genuine. So their non-optic was that they have been committed to having this, you know, anti- We'll just blanket anti everything all along. And I've seen them enact that several times with removing members from the USPA for, you know, doing things that are anti towards other members. And, you know, my old coach, Gracie Viviancy, was very, very publicly removed from the USPA for her discrimination against another person. Um, it wasn't a racist um, agenda or action, but it was just fucked up. And they were very public about the removal of her. And I totally back that because she was fucking wrong. And there's so many instances where people are just fucking wrong. And I also, I hope that you all just take this as it is. But I also think it's fucked up that other people are like, well, this is my time too. It's like, just shut the fuck up up and let these people have their moment. Black, white, Mexican, whatever. Every single person that is standing up for this movement and saying what you did was fucked up, you can't deny that. You can't deny what happened to George Floyd was not fucked up. What has happened to so many African Americans is not fucked up. So it's your time to shut the fuck up and let them goddamn speak and just say, okay. There doesn't need to be a rebuttal. There doesn't need to be a defense. You can just say, I was wrong. It's like you walk into someone's house with you know, mud on your shoes and you get it on their carpet. You don't need to say, well, it was raining outside. No, don't defend yourself. Just say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And I mean, that's the biggest oversimplification of what's going on, but it is. And the way people act in response to what's going on is their own individual right. People rioting, people protesting, people being loud, people being angry, people being upset. That is how they feel. 
how I have felt during coronavirus is that I felt like I needed to relapse on my eating disorder. That is how I feel. And, you know, do I think it's fucked up that a lot of businesses who are also minority owned, who are not involved in any of this in any way, got affected? Yeah. But honestly, I hope you had insurance. That's what this is for. But historically speaking, um, movements are movements for a reason. That you don't hear in the history books of all the peaceful protesting. You hear about the shit that made fucking noise because that's what gets answers. That's what gets results. And unfortunately, in our society, sometimes people only understand violence. And that's what it has had to be. And I just want to differentiate like people who are virtue signaling versus people who are doing non-optic allyship. And there is a difference. Um, it does bother me to my core when I see those posts of, you know, your silence is siding with the oppressor. In a sense, I agree with that. But just because someone is not posting on their social media platform of all of the things that they personally feel or are personally doing in response to what is going on does not mean that they don't agree or that they disagree. So that's just my two cents on that. And relating that to COVID-19, coronavirus in general, this pandemic in general, the economic shutdown as a total affects minorities greatly, much, much, much greater than their white or non-minority counterparts. Think of the jobs that are impacted. Like right now, think about the you know, there's no childcare available, what they're doing with public schools, the shutdowns, like trying to educate people. And a lot of people who are minorities, this is the statistics, this isn't my opinion, they work, they're more essential workers than non. So they're, um, or they're working more low income jobs than non, and their jobs are being cut more than non. So it's just, you know, all in all, like, I understand why you guys are fucking pissed off, and I goddamn agree, and there are a lot of things that I have done, and if you're listening to this, and you feel like there's something, a discussion you would like to have with me, or personally, there's something that I can do, fucking reach out to me, because I'm open for all of it, all of it, and I commend everything that you guys are doing, and I'm sorry for everything that you guys have gone through. I feel like I need a moment of silence after that rant and for George Floyd, and I'm going to give it. Okay, deep breath. We're back. On my list of things that I'm talking about, I kind of talked about the USPA, so I'm going to talk about powerlifting meets. Um, as of yesterday, the 12th, gyms in California were legally allowed to open. Um, we opened two days early because we were like, fuck it. We don't think that they're really going to do anything just by opening two days early. And now there's meats back on the table. And as you know, I'm a powerlifting coach and I have athletes who compete. And a lot of my athletes have started reaching out to me already about competitions. And I just want to make a statement about that. I don't think that there's anything wrong with wanting to compete. I myself feel like I need a goal and thinking about not competing until next spring kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. And 
like that's too far because I competed in February. I was supposed to compete just at the end of May, so like a week ago, two weeks ago. And um, Stephen is competing in December, so I don't want to overlap with him. So it would have to be a couple months after that. And so I signed up for a meet in October. But just like there could be additional restrictions and take a moment and pause and just think if that's what you want to do, because do you really want to like wear a mask while you're competing? You know, so like just think about what is the best for you. And if you're a newer lifter, maybe taking a little bit more time off could be the better option instead of signing up for something today, tomorrow, because there's probably going to be a ton of meets added over the next several months as all the restrictions still loosen. Because as of this time in the state of California, there has not been guidelines for spectator sports yet. So even though these meets are ongoing um, and scheduled, we don't necessarily have guidelines for how many people are allowed to come, like what's that going to look like with all the social distancing bullshit and all of that. Um, so what do you feel like you would be comfortable with? If you want to compete with a mask on and none of your friends or family coming, then go ahead and sign up. But if you feel like, oh, maybe I should wait just like another month and see when the guidelines are posted for my state or my area, um, I don't know. That's just my two cents on that. Since I was supposed to compete, I ended up doing my whole cycle, my drug cycle, and my lifting cycle, um, and I ended up maxing out as if I competed. I was supposed to compete in the Sisterhood of Strength meet in New York. It's a female-only, wraps-only meet. It was supposed to be the 30th of May and in uh, at Mount Vernon Barbell, and it got scheduled, rescheduled to December. Well, since I am not going to do that competition because of Stevens, and I don't want to go to New York in December, I just decided to ride all that shit out and do gym PRs, of which I PR'd everything. So my wrapped squat PR is 501 pounds. My sleeved squat PR is now 450 pounds, which I wouldn't say I'm disappointed in because all I wanted was PRs, but... The way my progress was going um, was a little bit better than what ended up happening um, during my squats. I was experiencing some severe bilateral, meaning both sides, thoracic outlet syndrome. Um, it is actually common. I'm just going to describe because maybe some of you are experiencing this in your lifting. When you're squatting and you squat low bar, when you're engaging your lats, you're putting a lot of pressure on the bar on your back, which actually closes off the front, like where I call it your boob pit. If you drew a line in between your delt and your pec, right in the middle there is where you have a bundle branch of nerves that come out and supply the innervation to your arm. Well, when you put all that pressure with the bar on your back, it temporarily occludes the blood flow to those nerves and it can create um, minor pain to moderate to extreme pain in one or both arms. And the pain that you feel is usually trailing around your posterior or your rear delt to your tricep. And then maybe if it's a little bit more severe down your forearm and into your hand. Well, I was experiencing pain at the final weeks of my training so bad that it came on the onset was super rapid. Like 
over the last three weeks of my training, it was went from zero to a thousand to the point where I was trembling, shaking on the ground, moaning, groaning, and the final day when I actually did max out in tears. And I'm not a fucking bitch. I do not bitch out. I do not wuss out. If I'm in pain, usually I just don't even say anything. But this was to the point where I could not ignore it. I could not continue. And it would persist for about 30 minutes. Um, The pain would kind of subside after like 10 minutes enough for me to do another rep, but it wouldn't fully go away. And it would take like 30 minutes to an hour for it to 100% go away. Because it's nerve pain and because it's occurring from occlusion, once the blood flow finally resumes, then the pain goes away. It's not like a muscular tear or strain where it's constant and it's there until it heals. So super frustrating there that um, that's what I ended with, but it's still a PR of 20 pounds from my last competition squat in sleeves. Bench. I'm a BBB, a big bench bitch. We made the fucking shirts. I hit 300 pounds. It was fucking easy. It looked like it could have been a goddamn opener. That is a number I've been chasing forever and ever and ever. It was so fast that I jumped right to 315 after. Um, I got it off of my chest, but that's about it. I was pretty gassed, and I'm still ecstatic and elated, and I don't give a fuck about going higher right now. I am sitting in this moment that I've been chasing 300 pounds for, I would say, a year, and I finally got it, and I'm just happy. I'm not like, oh my god, what's next? I'm just like, I fucking bench 300, and period. That's it. And deadlift, um, I wanted anything over 475 because 475 was my highest um, pull. I did it last. I did it Halloween, not last year, but the year before. Um, and so I went from 450, which was super speedy, to 480 because I wanted to secure that PR. And 480 was pretty easy. Oh, well, I wouldn't. It wasn't a one, one, one rep max. Um, so I wanted to go for 500 after, and I got like one side barely off the ground, and that was it. But um, I, in hindsight, I should have made that jump from 450 maybe to 485 or 490. Um, in deadlift, you usually take a larger jump than you would in squat. Um, in bench, it's definitely way, way, way smaller. Um but especially as you're stronger in deadlift, you could take 40 or 50 pound jumps is more appropriate than, you know, like a five or 10 pound jump like you wouldn't bench. But all in all, I'm still happy. So I totaled 450, 300, 480. It's a great bucking total for sleeves um, at weighing in at 170 pounds that whole week. Um, my weight class is 165 pounds. If it was a real me, I would have, um, you know, lost that water weight or dieted just a little bit. I haven't done any dieting or care, obviously, with my eating disorder. Um, but that is what that is. And I'm happy about that. And one more tangent Um, I was going to name this episode originally AA or WW or ED, all of the acronyms. Um, It's kind of common among people right now that maybe people have been drinking more than they like or putting on a little more weight than they like due to coronavirus. But as I said before, there is not many other coping mechanisms. Food is euphoric. Alcohol can be a great relaxing experience. Obviously, there's um, total, you know, skewed to one side or the other of too much or too little or, you know, the sweet spot of all of those things, you know, in moderation. There hasn't been much moderation during COVID-19. And like, there just needs to be a point where you just give yourself a fucking hug and say, it's okay. I have drank 
every single night, probably for the last month. To the point where I'm blackout drunk, absolutely not. But to the point where like I have, you know, a glass of wine or two or three to take the edge off and to feel, you know, relaxed and comfortable, that's what I fucking need to do to fall asleep right now. Because the moment I try to close my eyes and my head hits that pillow, I have a million racing thoughts about all the things that are going on in life and all the things that I can't control. And that increases my anxiety, increases my depression. So I just need like a little bit to chill and relax. And you know what? I'm a fucking functioning adult. I don't have an, you know, I'm not waking up and crying of beer. I have, you know, a couple glasses of wine before I go to bed or some Trulies, which is my seltzer drink of choice. And I'm just fucking okay with that. And is it going to stop soon? Yeah. I always drink when I podcast. So I do have a mango Truly seltzer in front of me, but I don't feel the need to have to drink that to go to bed at this point in time. At this point in time, sitting to the left of me, well, actually laying all doped up to the left of me, She's doped up not to her choice, but it's my dog, Nova. If you follow my stories, you would know that she had CCL surgery. It's called a cruciate ligament, cranial crucial ligament. It is the equivalent of the human ACL. Dogs have them in each of their hind legs. And the ACL is basically like, it's the same line of pull as your hamstrings. It's in your knee. It helps stabilize your knee. Um, Nova last April had her left knee um, ACL or CCL repaired. They do a procedure where, um, they a dog's tibia. So like your shin bone, their tibia, it's angled instead of flat, like a human's, they make it flat and then they affix a metal plate with some screws to it and they take out the cruciate ligament and it's all better. So right when we moved into our duplex in April of last year, the same day we moved is the same day she had her surgery. Talk about stressful. And, um, she had an amazing recovery and now that's her strong leg and her right leg has been bothering her for a while. They told us it was a 50, 50 chance. She was going to need the right one done and we did it and it sucks. It's like having kids. There's never a good time to like have a big, you know, life event. But the same day we opened our gym was the same day she was scheduled for surgery and we just went through with it because, Although it sucks, like she's all doped up. She's She has to be in the crate for six to eight weeks, which the hardest part is like after two weeks when she's like not all drugged up and she's just pissed that she's in the crate. But dogs are non-compliant patients and they don't understand that they can't run, jump, sprint, play, do any of that because the integrity of the joint is still compromised until it fully heals. But at the 12-week mark, so four months, three months from now, she is 100% cleared to do whatever the fuck she wants. So she will be back at the gym in September-ish. So look out for Nova then. Um, you know, I think I'm getting to the end. I'm getting to the end. I do want to say that at the gym, um, if you are a member of South Bay, you will be seeing a lot of new faces. Um, we lost about a third of our members over this pandemic, whether it's People who don't want to come back because they don't feel safe due to coronavirus or people who are just had canceled over the time of the closure because they lost their jobs, whatever, moved away, whatever. Um, we also gained um, not as many as we lost, but we've gained a few new memberships um, over the past couple of weeks. And it's going to be nice to just get the family going and get some new faces and all that. And honestly, like... There's 
guidelines um, from the state of California and from LA County. And we have the proper signage. We are in, we have signs for wearing masks and signs for cleaning, but there ain't no law that says you 100% have to do both. So we're getting a lot of members by virtue of people that don't want to go to commercial gyms where you have a fucking hour schedule and you have to do this and you have to wear a mask and you have to do that, blah, blah, blah. Fucking come as you are, South Bay, at your own risk. We have a COVID-19 waiver that basically says... When you walk in the store, shit's on you. If you get sick, sorry, you're accepting all responsibility that that's a possibility. And that's how I feel that life should be. Like if you are vulnerable, if you have comorbidities, if you live with someone that's vulnerable or has comorbidities and you're afraid or they're afraid, you should protect yourself and them and stay the fuck away. And if not, come fucking party. Speaking of, on July 4th, we're going to have a motherfucking deadlift party. I think when I'm done with this podcast, I'm going to make the flyer. And I got some beer koozies already, and I'm stoked just to have people together doing some fun shit that's not stressful because I feel like every single event that has been in the news, in the world, that's of importance has just been stressful, and people have nothing but time to, you know, dissect and and feel these things. And not that these things shouldn't be felt or be happening, but... Where's the relief? You know, we need some social relief. We're emotional creatures that need interaction and stimulation and uh, a non-stressful way to be able to function well. And I want South Bay to be that source. And I want to have a fucking party and I want it to be fun. And (sighs) I feel like I can breathe slightly easy knowing that the family's back together And, you know, we have big plans for South Bay. We want to move to a bigger place still that's still hopefully in the cards. And, you know, I just want to say I have so much love for all the people that have helped us, you know, over this closure. There's been so many people and my clients more than anything. I fucking love you guys. Like Team Veggie, we had a PayPal money pool open And we got a lot of donations the first month we were closed and then it like trickled down to nothing, which is totally understandable because, you know, a lot of people, their financial situations changed and not a lot of people knew how long this was going to go on. And 90 days is a long fucking time. But I will say the majority of the donations that South Bay Strength Company got were from people who don't even go to our motherfucking gym. They were from my clients from Team Veggie. And I cannot thank you guys enough for being so supportive for a place that you is not even your home. It's my home and you care enough about me to support my home. And I appreciate you more than you know. And I thank you all. And with that being said, I'm truly yours. Drink it a truly sponsor me and I'm out.